we, uh, we live in a, a world where there's a lot of uh, competing voices and competing viewpoints and competing uh, ideas about um, things in life, about different issues, about uh, morality, about you know, the way that we ought to live. And in times like this, I believe that what we need more than anything else is not another opinion of human, not, not another idea that somebody throws out, not more research, but I think we unequivocally need to hear the word of God, the voice of God, the message of God in a time where everyone is throwing out their own ideas of what's right and true and, and moral. Uh, we need to hear a clear uh, and unwatered down declaration of God's word uh, for such a time as this when multiple viewpoints are vying and fighting for our heart's attention and for our ultimate allegiance. Um, it's a similar situation that was facing the time of the prophets. Right? We're going through the prophets. We began this last week and their singular message and the singular reason for the existence of the prophets is that in the midst of a culture, in the midst of a kingdom that's going in all different ways, they needed, the people needed to hear the voice of God. And so God would raise up these prophets. Today we're going to uh, look into the book of Hosea. Hosea is the first of the minor prophets. Last week we started this look in the prophets starting with Isaiah. Isaiah was prophesying to the, uh, both the northern and the southern kingdom, particularly the southern kingdom. Uh, we're not going to get to all of the prophets. And the ones that we get to, we're not going to go in, in the order as they're presented in the Bible. I'm trying to, I'm trying to hit on a few of them but go in a chronological order so that you can understand the message of the prophets in its historical context so that you can make sense of it if you're to go home and read it later on today. As you turn to Hosea 1, I just want to remind us of, of context. After the first three kings of Israel, right, they were, uh, for the most part, they were decent, but they fell away in their later years. After the third king, there was a civil war in Israel, and the kingdom of Israel was divided into two, right? Northern kingdom and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom of ten tribes was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Babylon. I'm sorry, it was called Judah. Judah, two tribes, okay, two tribes in the southern kingdom called Judah. And these tribes, um, prophets would be sent to them, to these two kingdoms, in order to preach a message. Isaiah around 700s, in the 700s BC, prophesied that the northern kingdom was going to fall. Um, Hosea was a contemporary of Isaiah. He preached and prophesied during the same time as Isaiah, giving the same message, but he was speaking to the northern kingdom, saying, this is going to happen. If you don't repent, if you don't turn back to God, then you are going to be destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. And sadly, the people of God did not listen. And so in 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed and was ransacked. Hosea was the last prophet okay, to preach to the northern kingdom before they fell into sin and they were demolished and they were no more. Okay, so this is the message of Hosea. And Hosea is important and he, he's a famous book uh, for one simple reason. One simple reason, not only because of his message, but because his life was a living illustration, was a parable of the message that he was preaching. It was a sad and tortured life. We're going to read, uh, starting in chapter 1, uh, verse 1. I'm gonna, uh, we're going to ultimately get through chapter 3, um, but I just want to, uh, first half of our time, I want to kind of explain his story a little bit, and then I'll give three thoughts on how it applies to us. It says, The word of the Lord came, that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea. Okay, let's, let's pause here for a second. So the Bible is very economical in its usage of words. It doesn't say everything that you need to say, everything that it may want to say, but it says everything that is necessary for us to understand. So he says that there's this prophet Hosea preaching in the northern kingdom. The Lord began to speak through him. So he's speaking this message basically saying, listen, if we don't turn back to God, then what's going to happen is that the mighty and the Assyrian empire was evil, wicked, wicked, wicked people. Uh, they were, I mean, they're, they're some of the worst, uh, you think about the worst kind of terrorists, worst kind of terrorist groups. Uh, that's who Assyria was. And Hosea is saying to the northern kingdom, listen, I know that we're God's people and you think you're going to be protected. But if you don't turn back to God, 
then Assyria is going to come and he's going he's to wipe us out. We're going to be destroyed. And the people were like, well, no, Hosea, God wouldn't do that to us. He's too nice. He loves us. And Hosea is saying, no, like a father disciplines his children, this is what God is going to do to us. And he's going to use Assyria to be the spanking stick in order to do that. But they don't listen to him. And so any prophet, any preacher whose message is not being received well, Hosea is sad. And so God says to him in verse 2, the Lord began to speak through Hosea. The Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So God is saying to Hosea, in a sense, hey, so they're not really paying attention to your message, huh? And Hosea says, no, not really. And he's a little bit bummed about that. And so God says, I've got something that I think is going to help your ministry. It's going to help your message. Hosea's like, what is it, God? He says, I'm going to give you a wife. So Hosea is really excited. He's like, that's a great idea, God. I think that, that's going to, yeah, that will definitely help me. That will definitely help me a lot. So God says, I'm going to tell you exactly who this is going to be. So if you go to this certain place, there's a guy named Deblame. And if this doesn't work out, he's the one to blame. So there's a guy named Deblame. He's got a daughter named Gomer. Okay. Probably don't know many women named Gomer, okay? but this is her name. It's kind of a strange name, but there's a woman named Gomer, and God says, I want you to go and marry Gomer. And then just in case you don't know which one, this is who her father is going to be. So marry her, and she's going to help your ministry because ultimately, ultimately, she's going to become an adulterous wife to you. She's going to cheat on you. She's going to be unfaithful, just like the people of God have been to me. So Hosea's like, oh, snap. <laughs> That's not what I thought you meant when you said you're going to help me by giving me a wife. And so here Hosea, he gets his wife. And it doesn't say when exactly she starts being unfaithful to him. But one thing that we do know is that it probably started, the relationship probably started like many others, they were a couple in love. Because in order for it to illustrate the love that God has for a people, it has to illustrate the love that God has for his as well. So you've got Hosea, and he marries Gomer, and they're set up together. He finds her. They go on dates, and he's probably met a woman he's completely smitten by. Right? He, they, lay at, they, they lay down on their picnic bench and they, they spread out their, their blanket on the floor and he's looking into her beautiful eyes. <laughs> you light up my world like nobody else. The way that you flip your hair. I just, he's falling in love with her. This roller coaster, butterflies in your stomach kind of a love. He falls in love with Gomer and she falls in love with him. And they get married and just on cue, they have a baby. And the baby's crying, and they say, just in, in case Hosea forgets why this marriage and this whole family thing is happening, God says, remember, this is going to be a picture of your relationship, your people's relationship with me as God. Right? The Israelites as my wife and me as their husband, this is going to be a picture of your family. And so he's, your family's going to be a picture of that relationship. So conceives and gives birth to a son. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel. Because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. So as it was in those days, names indicated something of the future of the child. And so here you've got this child, this boy named Jezreel, and that was not a good name in Israel. In fact, in 2 Kings, it tells us what, basically what it says here, that there's a king named Jehu, and he massacred, slaughtered all of these other people during this coup, and, and, and King Ahab's people got overthrown, and that all took place in a valley called Jezreel. And so as a reminder of the violence and of the anger and of the war, uh, just the, the wartime mentality, the violence that Israel had, he names this child Jezreel and says, this needs to be punished, this sin needs to be punished. And so after that first son is born, Hosea begins to realize that life and family life and marriage isn't going to be a walk in the park here. 
And it was probably right around this time that Hosea began to hear rumors and began to have suspicions of his wife's unfaithfulness to him. Maybe he came back from preaching one day and he saw someone else's clothes in their home. Maybe his son Jezreel was running around and he was making mention of some other man's name was hanging out with his mom and Hosea is beginning to wonder. Maybe he suspects why is she so aloof? Why is she so distant from me these days? He tries to engage her, but she won't have conversation with him. He realizes that she's become a little bit more distant, a little bit more wait. She's going out a lot more at night. She can't explain what she's been doing with all of her time. He's not sure where she goes, where she's coming from. He asks her and she says, I just went to buy some milk, but she's been gone for three, four hours. He's beginning to have suspicions that what God said was going to happen is beginning to happen. That the wife that he loves with all of his heart has begun to be unfaithful to him. And it says in verse six that they conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said, call her lo Ruhamah. For I will no longer show love to the house of Israel that I should at all forgive them. Why does he call her Lohu Ruhamah? Because that means the one who is not loved. Hosea looks at this child and he names it Lo Ruhamah, the one who is not loved. Because somewhere in his heart, he probably realizes that this is not my child. I can't love him. I can't love her. I can't love her the way that I would if she was really mine. And so God says, this is a sign that I will no longer love the way that I used to love. And then he goes on, verse 7, Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. Verse 8, After she had weaned Lo-Ruamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. As he looks at this third child, he looks at that child and says, this is not my child. This is not mine. And God says, call him not my child because you, Israel, will no longer be my people. And every time he looks at his two kids, he's just confronted and stabbed through the heart with the reality that these children were conceived to his wife from other men. It says in uh, Hosea 2, 4, these are children born of adultery. When I look at my three kids, I look at them and I see in them my baby pictures because they look a lot like me. But whenever Hosea looked at his children, those last two kids, they look like somebody else around town. They look like someone else. And he knew that his wife was no longer being faithful to him. She would go out. She would just blatantly go out, sleep with other men. She would come back home maybe to get more money, to get her stuff, and then she would go back out. But verse 10 gives a word of hope. It says, Yet the Israelites will be like sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. So in the midst of all of this, there's a tenor of hope that God speaks. That even though your people are going to be taken away and destroyed, there's hope of redemption, of restoration. That's for the people. But what about for Hosea and his marriage? For Gomer? At some point, we begin to realize that Gomer says, okay, Hosea, I've had enough. That's it. I don't want to be with you anymore. Maybe it's the fact that She doesn't like the message that he's preaching. Maybe it's the fact that she's got wandering eyes and there's other men that are calling out to her. But for some reason, she decides that Hosea is no longer good enough for me. And so she goes off with other loves. And she begins being so degraded and so debased and so vile that she begins selling her body in prostitution. Not just an adulteress, but she becomes a prostitute. And how when Hosea hears about her, his heart is broken over her. 
This is what in chapter two, it talks about God's relationship to Israel, but you can see it through the lenses of of Hosea's relationship with Gomer. It says in verse five, chapter two, their mother, the mother of these children has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. And she's saying, I know Jose, Jose is saying, I've given you all of that stuff, but she doesn't believe that he gave it to her. She says, I'm going to chase these men. They're going to give me my clothes. They're going to give me my food. They're going to give me the jewelry. They're going to give me everything that I want. And she leaves Hosea in order to sleep with other lovers who promised these things to her. She goes that she prostitutes herself out, becomes an adulterous woman, becomes defiled, and becomes impure in all of her actions. So if you are Hosea at this point in time, what do you do? What do you do? If Hosea was your friend, what would be your marital advice to him? This morning before our prayer meeting, I was just I was talking with Biggie, and he said, Man, shoot, I tell Hosea, what are you doing? You're fool. Leave her. I think that's what most of us would say. If this was your friend and she willfully, blatantly committed adultery, was selling her body to other lovers and gave no thought to who you were anymore, no thought to your feelings, just giving herself away. We would say leave, but what does Hosea do? Chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, go Show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. And so here goes Hosea. And he goes out looking for his wife. He goes looking and searching for the woman that he married, the woman who once was the woman of his dreams. A match literally made in heaven, ordained by God. And he would walk around and he would go to places where shady women would hang out, the red light district, to clubs, to bars, to prostitution houses. And he would ask anyone, have you seen Gomer? Have you seen my wife? And he would describe her to them. And they would say, no, we don't know. We don't know. Nobody knows. No one knows where she is. Once in a while, people would say, Gomer, yeah, we know Gomer. Gomer, the wife of the blame. And he's like, yeah, yeah, have you seen her? And they would say, why would you want her? Nobody's wanted her for years. No one's wanted her for months, however long it's been. Nobody wants her. Maybe at one point they did, but not after she did all of these things and everyone knows of the things that she did. Why would you want her? Because she's my wife and I love her. I love her. Have you seen her? Just tell me, where where have you seen her? And nobody knows. And finally someone says, well, she was shacking up with this shady guy. This dirty old man he says where does she live where does he live and so he goes to his house and knocks on the door and says oh she's gone she's gone i don't know where she is anymore but if i could guess if i could guess i would guess that she would be in that slave auction and so hosea goes and he finds a place where slaves are being sold And he sees what he thinks is the woman that he once married, a shadow of what she used to be. He looks at her. She looks like she's far cry from that beautiful lady that he fell in love with. And he says, Gomer. And she can't even muster the dignity to look up into the face of the man she once loved. And it says in verse 3, verse 2, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. And he bought back that which he had no need to buy back. The wife of his youth, he bought her, and this is the exact price that Exodus says, is the price of a slave. And he pays a slave's ransom in order that Gomer might be brought back to him. What kind of a love is this? 
What kind of a ridiculous love is this? As we look into this, this is the first half is done. The second half, I just want to give three points of application here as to what we see about our relationship with God and ultimately how this is all about Jesus. The first thing that we see here about the love of God is that God's love is a committed love. But it is not a contract. It is a covenant. God's love is a committed love, but it's not contractual. It is covenantal. What does that mean? There are two ways that we can be committed to a person these days. One is we are committed to a thing these days. We could be committed by virtue of a contract. And we have contracts all the time, don't we? There's a contract to have your cell phone. I've got my cell phone contract. I've got my contract with my cable TV provider. The contract works on the basis of an if-then relationship, right? If you do your part, then I will do my part. If you pay your bill, then I will provide service. If you stay with me for 24 months, then you'll be released. If you breach your contract, then I will know I'll, I'll charge you for it. There's no grace. There's no forgiveness in a contract. If one person messes up, then that relationship is over. God is committed to us deeply, but his relationship with us is not a contract where if you mess up, then this relationship is over. There are, God does say, if uh, my, my people have failed, they're messed up, they're no longer my people. But he always gives a word of hope and of redemption that you will be brought back to me. God's love is not a contractual relationship. It's not a contractual commitment to us. It is a covenantal relationship. A covenant is not an if-then relationship. It is an even-if relationship. Even if you fail, I will still remain faithful. Even if you are unfaithful, I will still be true. Even if you mess up your end of the bargain, I will still remain true to my part, to what I promised. Even if you go astray, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the relationship that God has with his people. It is a covenantal commitment that says, I will never leave no matter what you do. And the clearest picture of a covenantal relationship in our day is a marriage. And that marriage ratification ceremony happens during the vows. And in the ensuing, the the ratification of those vows happen in that sexual union. That is a covenantal ceremony between a husband and wife. We're committed covenantally to one another. No other context is strong enough to handle that kind of a commitment, that kind of an intimacy. And so he's saying in, in a marriage relationship at a wedding, this is what we say. I commit, I pledge my life to you. I pledge to be faithful and loyal in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow. Even if you're sick and about to die, I will still be faithful to you. Even if we have no money, even if you you get laid off from your job, even if I will still be faithful to you to you this is the love relationship that god has with his people it is a covenantal relationship it is deeply committed because within covenant there is grace within covenantal love there is a relationship of unconditional love of forgiveness that says if i have ever loved you then i will always love you and if god has ever loved you then he will never stop loving you This is the love that God has for you. This is the love that God has for his people. If ever I love you, my child, it is now. This is what he says. His love for you is strongest now than it's been at any point. And it will never, ever, ever be able to, he'll never be able to love you more. He'll never be able to love you less. Once loved, forever loved. I was talking this week with a couple of people at our prayer meeting about uh, Islam and the other day I was having a conversation with someone who's uh, about Buddhism and we're talking about the differences in, between Buddhism and, and Christianity, between Islam and Christianity. And what a couple of these relationships, a couple of these conversations, basically it went to this place where it says 90% of the ethic and the morality of these two worldviews is the same. And I, I'm not going to argue with that. I don't think anyone can argue with that. But, but here's what we will say. It's the 10% that's different that makes all the difference in the world. 
Because within Buddhism, within, within uh, Islam, within Hinduism, within any other worldview, there is no grace. There's no forgiveness. There's no unconditional love. It is conditional. You do this, then you get this. There's no hope of heaven unless you do something. And even in that hope, it is not a certain hope. It is a wishful thinking. It is a, I hope that I can get there. If not, I will be reincarnated as something else in another life. I hope that I can get this. And the only way it's certain in Islam is if I die as a martyr for the sake of Allah. But what Christianity offers in one word is it offers grace. And that's why the world over is it's dying for grace. Because grace is not something that we see in this world. It's not something we taste in this world. When you go shopping, you're in Orlando, this happens all the time. You're, you're shopping, you're looking for a parking space at, at, at Shake Shack or at, at Trader Joe's, and there's nothing. And finally, one opens up. You're trying to, about to turn in, and just as that car's pulling out, from the other side, another car pulls in. You, you roll down your window. You shake your hand at them. And you don't say, God bless you. Have a great day. I was saving that spot for you. You don't say that. Why? Because that's not the basis on which our world operates. You get cut off in the middle of the road. You pull up next to them. You don't roll down your window and say, forgiveness and God's blessings on you. Shalom, my friend. You don't say that. Because our world doesn't operate on the basis of grace. It says, if you've been wronged, then I need to show you that you're wrong. But the grace of God the covenantal love of God continues to love even if we fail. And this is what Hosea, the first thing Hosea is showing us. The second thing that we see here is that God's love is patient, but it is not passive. It's a pursuing love. If you look in chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 4, uh, verse 5, we, we read this, but we'll read it again, verses 5 and 6. Their mother has been unfaithful, has, been, has conceived them in disgrace. This is what Gomer says. I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. This is what God says. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. The God is enduringly patient with Israel, just as Hosea is enduringly patient with Gomer, but it's not a passive like, I'm going to be patient and wait for the bus to come. Just kind of sitting here waiting around, and one day the bus is going to come around. It's not a passive kind of a patience. It is a pursuing kind of a patience where he's going after. He says, she's going to go after other lovers, but I'm going to block her path. I'm going to block it so that she has no alternative but to turn around. It's like, you know, I don't know if, you, if this ever happened in a movie. I can imagine it has where a, husband, a man and a woman, they love each other. Uh, He loves her unrequited at this point because she's gone after other lovers. And she's like, I can't. I can't be with you anymore. I don't love you anymore. I love, you know, Jack. And I'm going to go. And I'm going to go to Jack. And so she's running. She's about to run out the door. And she opens the door. And then he slams it shut. And then he whispers something into her ear, something that only they know. And she, like, slumps down. She turns around. She's like, "I, I knew that there was no one else for me but you. And they hug and they embrace. And then... The light fades and it goes happily ever after. And that's kind of, what, <laughs> kind of what God is doing here. He's blocking the path to all of these other loves until she has nothing else to turn to but to realize that it was much better when I was with him. This is a pursuing kind of a love. And maybe some of us in here need to know that God has not given up on you and that he's patient with you and that even in this moment, he is pursuing your heart and wooing you and calling you and drawing you no matter what you've done. 
Saying, it's okay, I know all of that stuff. Just come back. Don't need to make excuses. Don't need to explain yourself. Just come. Just come back home. This uh, great book, No Wonder They Call Him the Savior, Max Lucado uh, tells the story of a, of a girl growing up in, in the poor places of Brazil. Her name was uh, uh, Cristina, young, beautiful girl, lived in the slums, a poor area. And she had always seen uh, through pictures of her friends and her cousins what life in Rio, the big city, was like. And so she, you know, just talked about, her, her friends would talk about, you know, you need to just come out here. Come out here for a little bit. Come out here just for a little bit. And, and she realized that, you know, this, this, this air mattress that I'm staying on, maybe it's not, the, it's not the best. And so one day she just packed up what she had and, and she just took off and she left. And so her mother, Maria, woke up um, the next morning and she saw that the bed was empty and she immediately she knew where she was going. And she said, I can't let my daughter go because a beautiful girl, she's going to be taken advantage of. All kinds of things are going to happen to her. And so Maria said, I need to go chase her. I need to go find her. And so before she went to the bus stop, she took one stop at the drugstore to buy one thing that she felt she needed. She was poor, but she spent all of her money on black and white photos of herself, printed out as many as she could, put them in her purse, and then she took off, got, the, got on the next uh, bus, got to Rio. And she knew that Christina was young, but she wasn't necessarily naive. She was a fighter. They were a beautiful girl with a fighter spirit meets desperation, and she's going to do whatever she wants in order, whenever she can in order to survive. And so like Hosea chasing after Gomer, she went to the places where people like a desperate Christina may go, to uh, you know, different uh, bars and clubs and restaurants, hotels, motels, seedy places. Everywhere she went, she would put up a picture of herself, black and white photos. She'd put it on a mirror put it on a bathroom, put it on a bulletin board. And when she ran out of pictures, with no trace of her daughter, Christina, she had nowhere to go but to go back home. And so she got on that bus and she wept and wept and wept as she went back to the slums, Brazil, trying to find her daughter, knowing that, hoping against hope, that maybe something will happen wasn't until several weeks later that Christina started walking down the stairs of the hotel. And on that mirror, she looked at herself, 15 years old, looked like she was 30, worn, beaten up by the stress of life, by being taken advantage of, by being beaten, by being abused, by letting her body be treated like a rag doll. But in that mirror, she saw the face of one, the only person, the one person in this life that she longed to see, the face of her mother. And she pulled the picture off of the mirror and she looked at it in the back and there was this invitation so compelling, written in Spanish. It said, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, just come home. Love, mom. She began weeping and weeping and weeping as she jumped on the next bus to go back home to her mother. And maybe today, this Sunday morning as we're here, if this is your story, that you're ashamed to look at yourself because of the things that you've done. Yeah, I know that this is some of our stories in here. I know that this is some of us. And you're embarrassed. You feel like the prodigal son. You feel like I could never come home, but there's a God who's pursuing your heart. There's a God who's chasing after you. There's a God who says, no matter what you've done, where you've gone, what you've become, it doesn't matter. Just come home. Just come home. And just like that day, Christina came home running. This could be your day to come back home because God is pursuing you with a love of a father who's heartbroken over his wayward children. He will shut doors in your life 
Hey, do you get this? Maybe, maybe the reason why you're not finding success in the things that you're looking to find success in, the reason why money is running dry in your life, the reason why friendships are falling apart, the reason why your romantic relationships are not working is because God is closing these doors in your life in order that you turn around and see that he's the God that's pursuing you. And he's the one that gave you everything. You're saying, I'm looking for love. I'm looking for significance. I'm looking for security and all of these other things. When God is saying it's not found in other lovers, it's found in me. I'm the one who gave you those things. You remember? I'm the one who gave you those things. Saying, come back. Life was better when you were with me. Come back home to the love of God. Every, this is, this is the way that God works. The road is not easy, but God blesses the broken road. Joyce and Eugene will tell you that God blesses the broken road. Every failure, every long lost love, every attempt at finding meaning in life is just a broken road that leads to God, it's a, it's a north star that points to where you need to go, which is the arms of love, the arms of God, the arms of a father who's seeking after your heart. The road is broken and it's filled with hurt, maybe filled with a lot of closed doors in your life. But at the end of broken dreams, at the end of closed doors, at the end of hopes and dreams that are shattered and ruins, He is the open door who's waiting for you. And he's not passive. He's pursuing you. And the fact that you're here and the fact that you're hearing is a sign that God is pursuing. And maybe you won't come home right now. He he, he longs that you will, but that you would hear, that you would know that right now his pursuit is for your heart and he's after your heart. God's not passive. He's patient, but he pursues you. The second thing, the last thing that we see, the last thing that we see about the love of God, this is a storybook kind of love, but it's not superficial. It's sacrificial, sacrificial kind of a love. Last Sunday, my, uh, our daughter Manny had a birthday party. It was a princess theme party. And so 11 princesses romped around in our house and it was beautiful, but no one, uh, everyone, everyone wore a, a princess dress. No one had to be convinced to wear it, except for maybe Jalen. <laughs> but everyone else wanted to wear their princess dress. Why? Because they have these dreams of a storybook life, of a storybook gown, storybook castle to live in. Uh, one day, hopefully not anytime soon, they're going to have dreams of a storybook love. And as I think about it, as I watch these princesses walking around, I didn't, I didn't, I realize how little I know of the Disney princess stories. Maybe because I'm a guy or maybe because it's just been a long time. But I thought about this storybook kind of a love that these princesses grow up believing. And I thought about what is it about the love and and, and, and there's so many commonalities amongst all of them. But I think one of the great commonalities is that the love is so superficial. Why does the prince kiss a woman in a coma. And it happened twice. I didn't know this happened twice. Cinderella and Snow White. Both of them were, were sleeping. I'm sorry, Sleeping Beauty and Snow White. Both of them are in a... They didn't get kissed because, ah, oh, I've seen them and the way that they interact with people is so caring. It's so loving. The way that they talk with animals. Oh, she's so... Oh, she takes care of seven dwarves and so beautiful. The way oh, her sense of humor... No, it's because they thought that she was hot, and so he kissed her. That's it. That's it, right? What, how, how else are you going to get to know a sleeping beauty? Except for the fact that she's asleep. Oh, she's a looker. That's it. Boop, kiss. That's it. She wakes up. Oh, my gosh. And all of a sudden, we live happily ever after. The reason why Cinderella, she asks this, this huge question at, the, uh, at some point in Cinderella. She says, am I loved because I'm beautiful? Or am I beautiful because I'm loved? That's a powerful question. A question that all of us long to know the answer to in the world. And its superficiality says, you know what? I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because you're beautiful. If you weren't beautiful, I wouldn't love you. That's not what God's love says. God's love says, I love you. And in loving you, you have become beautiful. In loving you, because I love you, you are beautiful. Because God sees 
where we don't see. It's not a superficial love. But I think what one thing as I was thinking about this and I was thinking about what is it that makes, I mean, it, really these stories don't make any sense. Um, <laughs> this lady, again, I mentioned, but this lady lives with seven little guys and then she like falls asleep because she ate a bad apple or something like that. And a guy kisses. How would you, why would you tell that kind of a story to a, to a kid or to say, uh, well, there's this mermaid and she is willing to leave her family and to leave the greatest gift that she has to, to follow this man that she's met one time, saw one time in her life. She's willing to leave all that behind for him. That's foolish. She doesn't know anything about him. But why do these stories continually get told time and time again? I don't know why, but this is something that, I've, that I think is, is important and valuable. Because every time these people fall in love, something changes within their lives. To the point where the author can say, after this, they lived happily ever after. Doesn't talk about the rigors of marriage. Doesn't talk about the difficulties of life as a prince. Doesn't talk about any of these things. It just says that there is love. And when love enters your life, you can be forever changed. You're not a toad anymore. You're not in a coma anymore. You're not at the mercy of an evil stepsister. You're a princess. And it begs the question, is this really possible? Is it possible that love can really free us from all of the stuff that's happened in our past that I can be set free from that and I can have a new life, that my life can be changed. Is it really possible? Can you really make beautiful things out of the brokenness of my life? Is it possible that love can free us from the horrible disfigurements that sin the world that other people have brought upon our lives? Is that really possible? And whatever Disney may say, I think what God says is even more true, that it is possible. It is possible. Look at what he says. When he brings and invites Israel and, they, and, and Hosea invites Gomer back, look what it says in verse 19 of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 19. It says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion, I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Okay, so what the heck does that mean? Well, it's important that we understand that three times this word betroth comes up. It doesn't mean anything to us because we don't know what that means. But what betroth means in those days is almost akin to what engagement is to us today. Here's what God is saying. Here's what Hosea is saying to Gomer. He's saying, we're going to go back to that time before we were married. Before you did all of this stuff. Before you cheated on me. Before you slept with other lovers. Before you chased after. Before all of that stuff happened, we're going to go back to a better day when you were pure. When you were lovely. I'm going to remember these things no more. I'm going to count these things against you no more. We're going to start over. He's saying, there is a love that's possible for adulterers and prostitutes to be made pure again. There's a love that's possible for us to start over again. That we're not defined and bound by our past, by our adultery, by our idolatry, by our failures anymore. It's possible that your life can start anew. Saying, this is what I offer you. This is what I give to you. This is what I promise to you. This is the love that God has for us. He says in verse 23, I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. That you who once were no longer loved can be loved again. You who are not my people can become my people again. How? How's this going to happen? Because if you read anything about history, realize that Israel didn't turn back to God. They didn't go back to him. They continued to give themselves to idols and to other loves and to other gods and to other sources of life. And in history, 722 years before Jesus was born, they were destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. They were not faithful. How would God 
through the pages of history, say, you who are not my people will one day be called my people again. It says in Hosea chapter 12, this is a great, in chapter 11, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Throughout the Old Testament, God uses this language of Israel as his firstborn son. They're my firstborn son. They're my beloved son. They're the object of my affection. Out of Egypt, I called them. And then you remember in Matthew chapter 2, what happens? Jesus Christ is born, and he's born in, in the town of Bethlehem, and King Herod wants to kill him because he wants to wipe out anyone who's potentially going to be the king of the Jews. And so God tells Joseph and Mary, you need to go to Egypt. And he goes to Egypt. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, it says, They stayed in Egypt until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. What is he saying? saying, Israel, my son, failed miserably, utterly, completely. But Jesus, my son, did not fail. What Israel failed to do, Jesus did perfectly. The reason why you and I can be called his people, you and I can be called his sons, you and I can be loved by God is because of Jesus. This is all about him. It's all about him that there would be one who would come in the place of Israel's unfaithfulness who would be forever faithful. And in his baptism in Luke chapter 3, God the Father speaks down, rending open the heavens, looks at his firstborn son, Jesus Christ. They called him the firstborn, meaning the first out of many, not born, begotten. Looks at his son and he says, you are my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. The reason why God can look at you and me who are not a people, who are not loved, who deserve nothing but condemnation is because God looks at those who put our trust in the finished work of the Son of God. And God looks at you and me, and he says the same thing that he says. He says, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You are loved of God. You are loved of God. You are forever accepted. You are forever approved. You are forever welcomed, simply because of what Christ has done. It's a sacrificial love that pays a price, just as Hosea paid a price he didn't need to pay for Gomer. God paid a debt that he didn't owe for you and for me. And it says in First Peter, he didn't buy us with gold. He didn't buy us with silver. But he bought us with a treasure way more precious than these. Bought us with the precious blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Bought us with that blood so that you and I could be called sons and daughters of God. Never to be put to shame. Never to be put away. But forever accepted that he would say over us, you are my child whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's the invitation that calls us and beckons and woos us and says, would you come back home to my love? Let's pray. The Bible tells us if you read between the lines, that no one is spiritually single here. We're either married to God faithfully or we're living in adultery, married to another. The fact is, I'm an, I'm an adulterer. I'm an idolater. I love, chase after, pursue other love. But there is at Calvary a fountain that flows with unconditional love and grace and forgiveness that woos and calls and beckons me to come home. And that love is reaching out for you today as well. And some of us in here, guys, we're honest with ourselves. We know we're far from home. We know that we're far from home. And if not already, a time will soon come where God will begin to block the way to these other loves. They won't satisfy you. And every one of those, every one of those things will be a sign pointing you back to lasting love, pointing you back to true love, pointing you back to Jesus. 
For, O Lord, our hearts were made for Thee, and our hearts remain restless until we find our rest in Him. Today, would you take that first step? Repentance is about turning around, about turning around. What direction are you facing today? You're facing the world, you're facing other loves. Would you turn around and at least talk to God today? Say, God, I'm not ready, but I want to be ready. Or God, I'm ready, I'm coming. Or God, would you just meet me here? I don't have words to say, just meet me here. Just pray together to the Lord, asking for his grace asking for his mercy, asking for his help in order that we might experience true and lasting love in the arms of a father. Let's pray for a couple moments. vision says you are the hound of heaven and you pursue your people you run after your people you chase after your people with an unending love with unending faithfulness never give up on the people that you love if you've loved us ever then you will love us always even though we let go of you you will never let go of us remind us of the covenantal love and faithfulness, the enduring promise that you've given to us. Because of your love, lead us to repentance. Because of your kindness, help us to repent. With this love that knows no bounds, in death and in life, continues to remain faithful and true and strong. Thank you so much for loving us. Cause us to love you. Help us to love you because of your love in us.